forward now. I want to look at the overall of Galatians chapter 3. I want to give us a big picture, and then we're going to settle down actually at the end of the chapter, okay? So I'm going to give you an overview, and I printed this for you in your notes. So if you have sermon notes in the bulletin, well, I say if you have sermon notes. If you have a bulletin, you have sermon notes. And up at the top of that, there's an overview and so I've, I've got it on the screen as well. If, if, if you're a notes kind of person, you just think better when you write something, bless you. If you want to just follow along on the screen, we can do that too. And we're going to read in our Bibles in Galatians chapter 3. If you're using the Pew Bible, we'll be in page 824. I tell you that just so you can find it quicker. All right, Galatians chapter 3. First of all, he says, well, how did you start? Continue the way you started. Remember the issue here in Galatians is... Well, I've believed in Jesus, but, but what, about, what about the law? The, didn't the law tell us a lot of things that we're supposed to do? And shouldn't we do all of those things? Shouldn't we be careful to do the things that the law tells us to do? And uh, there's a lot of religious tradition and heritage there that it seems like, well, aren't we supposed to continue that? And we're not faced with some of the issues they face, like circumcision or some of the sacrificial stuff of the Old Testament Jewish law, but we're, but we're faced with the same kind of pattern and mindset and thinking that if I do these certain things, if I fill these certain squares, and if I stay within certain boundaries, God-approved and even God-ordained and God-given boundaries, then I will be approved and accepted by God. And Galatians is, is running up against that. It's contesting that idea, establishing, reestablishing, re reminding us the basis on which we are approved and accepted and embraced by God is not by what we do, not by what squares we fill, not by what boundaries we stay within, but by our faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died for us. Well, I don't want to... I, I want to work through this in the order that the passage does. So, so go ahead and open your Bibles. Galatians 3, first of all, continue as you begin. How were you saved? That's how you live. Look from verse 1. You foolish Galatians. I probably said that a little stronger than I did. Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. He died for us. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish having, after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal? Are you now being perfected by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? Their, com their commitment to faith, their faith in Christ had cost them something. Their believing in Jesus rather than keeping these rules to be accepted by God, that had caused them to be expelled out of the synagogue. He says, you suffered that gladly because you had received God's acceptance. You had received the very righteousness of God in Christ by faith. Well, if that's how you began, if that's, that was your entrance into the Christian life, the way that you started is the way that you will continue. If we are saved by God's grace through faith, then we live by God's grace through faith, not of our own works. All right, so continue in the same way that you begin. And he says, let's go back. Let's, use the, let's validate this in the Old Testament. Let's show that the Bible shows this, that Paul's not just making this up. Paul's not just coming up with an easier way to God. This is what God has always said. He goes all the way back to Abraham because Abraham's before the law. So he brings Abraham in as witness number one in verse five. Does God 
give you the Spirit and work miracles among you because you observed the law or because you believed what you heard. Consider Abraham. He believed God. It was credited to him for righteousness. Abraham believed God, Genesis 15, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are the children of Abraham. The Scripture foresaw that God would justify, God would make righteous the Gentiles, the nations, by faith. And announce the gospel in advance to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. So that blessing is that acceptance to God on the basis of faith, just like it was for Abraham. All the nations will be blessed in you, so those who are faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All right? So Abraham was blessed by faith. Abraham was saved by faith. Abraham walked with God, not by his works, which weren't always so good. Abraham walked with God by faith. Abraham pleased God by faith. So we get to verse 10. Contrast Abraham blessed by God through faith to what does the law do? Verse 10, all who rely on the observing the law. If I want to fill rules or I want to fill squares or I want to, if I want to watch the boundaries, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. If you're going to be accepted by God, if you're going to please God on the basis of law, on the basis of rules, on the basis of works, you have got to be able to fulfill all of it. And that's not just forward-looking. That's past-looking. You will have to have fulfilled all of it. We're, we're already disqualified. The gospel tells us that we cannot please God. We cannot be accepted by God on that basis. If we couldn't begin our walk with God on that basis, why do we think we can continue our walking with God on that basis? Cursed is everyone who does not do everything. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. The law is based on works, not on trusting God because I cannot. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He was cursed. The one who, the one who was the most blessed of God, God himself in humanity, actually becomes cursed for us. The ones who were cursed, he takes our place. There's this divine exchange that goes on. He takes our curse and we receive his blessedness. We, we receive his standing and his rightness before God. Christ redeemed us, verse, verse 13, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for, for us. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we receive the promise of the Spirit. Jesus redeems us from that curse of law by faith, by believing, by accepting God's promise. Okay? Well, yeah, but that was Abraham. That was then, but after a while, the law came along. And didn't the rules change? Was there a plan B? Was there a shift in God's purpose? Was there a shift in how God was going to work with people? Look at verse 15. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is here. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to all of your descendants, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person, Christ. 
What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established. Let me shortcut this. What he's saying is God established it on the basis of promise. God established that all the nations would be blessed in his offspring, Abraham's descendant, Jesus. The law comes along later, but it can't change that promise. God cut a covenant with Abraham. There was a last will and testament kind of a covenant involved here. And it was a covenant that God himself established. Abraham falls asleep, and there's these animals on either side, and the presence of God and a flaming torch goes between them and establishes the covenant all by himself. If Abraham had walked through with him, then both he and Abraham would have had something to do. But God did it on his own. God established this covenant so that it would be to us by means of God's promise, not by means of an agreement, a contract that would be between the two of us that each of us would have something to do in order to fulfill it. It's given to us as a promise versus requirements of law. Verses 15, 18. Well, if that's true, if the law was not, was not given then as the means that people could be accepted by God, what, what is the purpose of law? What is it for? What does the law do? I've said in your notes that the law is a crosswalk to lead us to Christ. The purpose of the law was to guide in a direction. And that's what, that's what Galatians unfolds for us here, beginning in verse 15. No, actually beginning down in verse 19. What then is the purpose of law? You see the logic. I, I, I want you to catch this flow of the chapter. What is law given for? It was added because of transgression. transgression. It was added because of sin. Until the the seed, the descendant to whom the promise referred, had come. Law was added for transgression. In fact, Romans tells us that law was given even to point out sin. Law was given so you would know sin to be sin. Law was given in order to show us our sinfulness. To show humanity that we could not be good enough. We couldn't measure up. The law is an expression of God's perfect, holy nature. And we don't measure up to it. And law is given to show something of God so that we will see that ourselves in comparison, we cannot keep his standard. I can't do it. Law was given for that purpose. And law was given with an expiration date. I learned a while ago that when you go shopping for your wife, you don't just go to the milk section and grab the one on the front, grab it, drop it in the cart, and go. Sometimes the one left on the front on the high shelf, easy to get, is there because everybody else has passed it by because it's got an expiry date. Don't buy weak old milk. It's not the same. It doesn't taste the same. You pour it on the cereal, and all of a sudden the frosted flakes, the frosted just can't overcome that. Ooh. Did you know the law had an expiry date? The law was given... It was added in, God brought in law because of transgression until the descendant to whom the promise referred had come, until Jesus came. The law was put into effect through the angels of a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law then opposed to the promises of God? What's all that for, this mediator? What's going on there? The law mediates between two. God says, I'm going to do this if you do that. 
If you do this, I'm going to do this. But if you don't do this, then this is what I'm going to do. There's a mediated agreement involving two parties. A promise, on the other hand, does not involve a mediator. A promise does not involve a Moses on the mountain getting the law and bringing it back to the people and trying to hold the people in line. Because a promise involves one person. The promise involves the acting of the person who made the promise only. That is the gospel. God has promised. I will give you life in my son. And that is not merely a home in heaven. That, is not, that promise of life is not merely you can come to heaven when you die, I promise. I will give you life. Jesus said, I've come that they would have life and have it more abundantly. And it's his promise. It's not a contractual agreement with obligations on each party. If you do, then I do. And if you don't, then this is what I'm going to do in response. It is God's promise upon his people. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Not at all. If a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. Law could never give life. Jesus came to give life. The scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner to sin. The law demonstrates our sin. The law shows us our need so that we will believe in God's Savior. So the whole, so that what was promised being given through faith in Christ might be given to those who believe. Before faith came, we were held prisoner by the law, locked up until the faith could be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. There's a word that occurs twice in that. It's a, it's a, it's a word that basically it means a child conductor. You see, in, in Greco-Roman civilization, those that had money would send their children to a school and would actually have a servant who would be responsible for their children, kind of like a nanny today, but maybe not quite the same. Probably had a little more authority over the children. I know one of the frustrations of nannies is, is um, they're wanting you to do, to, to, to make these, take, take care of these kids all day long, but there often isn't any authority over the children that goes along with it. But this, this Greco-Roman child conductor, I'll call it, okay? Child guardian or conductor. But when you think guardian, don't think that the parents are absent. But this is just one of the servants of the estate, of the household, that has been given responsibility for the children. He's a, a, a respected and trusted servant, but a servant, not the parent. And this, this servant was not the teacher. In fact, this servant might not be educated, he or herself. But their responsibility was not to educate the children. They would supervise the children and make sure that they were fed properly and they had their times of play and activity and so forth and did whatever responsibilities. And also they would make sure that the children got to school. They would take the children, escort the children to school, lead them to the place of school. The guardian was not the school. The guardian was not the destination. And once the child matured and grew up, the child was no longer under the guardian, but would take their place in the family as an adult heir or son. Okay? What is the law? The law is that guardian unto a time for a purpose to take to a place. The child conductor, the guardian, is like a crosswalk. You don't live in the crosswalk. 
You don't play in the crosswalk. You don't have recess in the crosswalk. You cross the crosswalk. In fact, now they time you. You know, if you're slow about it, what do they do? Well, they, the, the thing says, okay, walk. And then it says, walk faster. And then it begins to count down. If you don't get crosses in seven, six, five, four, you are going to be flattened. Right? Crosswalks are temporary. Crosswalks are toward a destination, and that is the law. That is the law. The law had sacrifices. Why? The sacrifices are to show us the Savior. You know, interesting thing about the law. I had a couple of examples here. Um, the law shows us our need, right? I'm a guy. Guys don't go to the doctor unless they know that they're sick. Unless all of a sudden there is an acute pain that flares up somewhere down there that says, oh, I have no choice. I have to go gr- dragged, kicking and screaming to the doctor. The law shows us that we're sick. The law shows us our need. The law also shows us something about God. I remember a little while ago, I don't know if I should use this example or not. Ah, I will. My wife was reading. She's, she's very diligent in her Bible reading plan. She, and, um, and at one point she says she's reading through, I think it was Leviticus, and she comes to this point where there is a legal test. If a husband is suspicious of his wife if she has been unfaithful, there's a test. He can bring her before the priest there at the tabernacle, and he will mix up this particular potion to give her to drink. And if she's been fine, if she hasn't been unfaithful, if she's been a, a loyal wife and a faithful wife, well, this drink won't do anything to her. But if she has been unfaithful, this same potion will do horrible things to her. It'll just rot her from the inside out. It's a horrible passage. It's like, what is this all about? You know the worst part of it? There's nothing like that for the man. It's nothing. And my wife is sweet and sensitive and has an innate sense of fairness. And she's saying, this is not fair. And, and truth be told, guys, when there's unfaithfulness going on, there's at least as good a chance, if not more, that it end the wife. So how is this fair? What was God thinking? Why did God do the law like that? Because it isn't about you. The law is also meant to show us something of God. And in the relationship where the people of Israel are God's wife, they are God's people, he is the husband. Israel, his people, is the spouse. They might be unfaithful, but there is no test in the law for the husband whether he's been unfaithful because there is no question that God will be faithful. If you turn the law into simply a whole series of rules that you're going to learn, or these are the ways that I'm supposed to live, you miss the purpose of the law, which is to be a crosswalk to point us to Christ. That's what it's about. It isn't about us. It isn't so much about our behavior. It is to show us that we are sinful, and it is to show us that God is our Savior. That's this table. Where did this table come from? It comes from Passover. This bread, this cup comes from Passover. That's why we use what, what, you may, what may seem like a cracker. But it's not a cracker. It's a Passover matzah bread, unleavened bread that, 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 that Jewish people use in their Passover celebration. We use that because this is a Passover table. And Passover reminds us of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So when we come to this table, we are still celebrating something out of the law, but we're celebrating something out of the law that points us to Christ. Okay? 
This bread is my body given for you. This cup is the new covenant. It's not the old cup of Passover. This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sin. So as those who are serving, I invite invite them to come forward at this time. And we're going to pause right here. And we're going to come to this table that God's law has brought us to the person of Christ. That the purpose of the law is to show us our need for a Savior and is to show us God and His Son, Jesus, who is our Savior. And I want to ask you this morning, as we prepare to partake of this table, I want to ask you this morning, have you seen your need for a Savior? Have you seen your sin? Have you seen that you cannot be good enough to be accepted by God? And have you seen as well that God's promise is that I am accepted because of Jesus who died in my place, who was cursed for me? If you've seen that, then the law has done its work. The story of Passover has done its work. You have seen not merely a Passover lamb, but you have seen the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's the one that we celebrate at this table. We're going to partake of both elements together. So we will be passing first the tray with the bread and then the cup. As you take one element and then the other, please just hold them together. And then we will partake all together after everyone has been served and the servers have come back up front. All right? So if you have believed in Christ as your Savior, then join us in celebrating what law showed us, our Savior, Jesus. As we are being served, just continue to reflect, maybe on some of the verses that are on the screen or just in your own revel, in your own forgiveness. If there's sin that you would take this time to confess before the Lord and accept his cleansing, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.
passage I often turn to to lead us together in this table comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And it fits because Paul is again reminding that this is something the Lord gave to him, just like the gospel that he passes on to us. It says that, For I received from the Lord that at which I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of him. Heavenly Father, we too give thanks. We thank you for the true bread of heaven who comes down from heaven to give light, life to the world. Lord, we have received of his life and we thank you. We had no life in ourselves, and no ability to create it. And yet you have made us alive in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for Jesus, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. In the same manner, after dinner, at the conclusion of that Passover supper, he took that cup. It was a cup of rejoicing, and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sin. That which a Passover lamb could never accomplish, Jesus did, dying once for all, the just for the unjust, that he would bring us to God. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So Jesus said, as often as we eat this bread of Passover and drink this cup of Passover. We proclaim his death for us until he comes. Father, thank you. Thank you not only that our Lord Jesus, our Savior, has come. Oh, Lord, thank you that he's coming again. Lord, thank you that while we wait for Jesus, our Savior, Lord, that while we wait, we live waiting. We live by your Spirit who also has already come. Thank you, Lord, for this life in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. We have, there we are. I lost the microphone. The law is a crosswalk. It leads us to Christ. It shows us Christ. The law is not a place to live, except to the point that it shows me my Savior. You know, people say, well, yeah, but doesn't the law say don't steal? Yeah, it does. It does. The law says don't steal. But what does the gospel say? The gospel says in Ephesians 4, let he who did steal, as the law showed that he did, steal no more, but rather let him work laboring with his hands so that he might have something to give. The law says don't steal because God doesn't take, God gives. And what do we do in this new life? We give. The law says be faithful. The law says do not commit adultery. Why? Because God is faithful. God could not commit adultery. God will be faithful to us. And so what what does the gospel tell us? Oh, the gospel raises up marriage, doesn't it? 
The gospel says, husbands, love your wife. The gospel doesn't just say, hey, don't, don't cheat. The gospel says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. We don't live in the crosswalk. Rather, we live in the destination, that destination of new life. See, the gospel is a changing. The gospel is life-giving. The gospel is transforming. And that's what the last two verses of Galatians chapter 3 tell us. Galatians chapter 3, look at verses 20, I think it's just 28 and 29. Well, we'll start at verse 26. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You're not automatically a son of God through, through Christ. You are a son of God through faith. He's saying this church, these believers here in Galatia, and I hope everybody in this room, you are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you are, All of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourself with Christ, his righteousness. It's on his righteousness that I stand before God, not my own. You've clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. Isn't it interesting that Paul says there is a difference? You clothe yourself with Christ in his standing, and in that likeness of Christ leaks out of us to those around us. You know the gospel was transforming? The gospel turned the world upside down. Did you catch that closing phrase, there is neither Jew nor Greek? There is neither slave nor free? There is neither male nor female? but all are one in Christ Jesus. It's been said before that there is all level ground at the cross. The gospel is transforming. There is all level ground. Because that is true, then what is true of the gospel in our own level ground standing, anybody can come. Even the person you don't think ever would, anybody can come through faith in Jesus Christ and be as completely accepted in God's embrace in Jesus as you are and as I am. And that means that there's a leveling here that ought to then, if that's true in my relationship with God, it ought to leak out. And it has. Consider some of the changes around the world historically in Western civilization as compared to as compared to other places in the world. First of all, distinction between Jew and Greek. The gospel destroyed the dividing wall. There was a wall in the temple that said women could only come so far. And Gentiles, forget it, they couldn't even get that far. You know, there was, there was this thinking in the first and second century that a rabbi, a rabbi wrote down and was well known for this quote, Blessed be God that he did not make me a Gentile. And blessed be he who did not make me poor. And blessed be he who did not make me a woman. Now, now, now Bob didn't say that. That was the rabbi. That was, that, that was a long time ago. But it wasn't, just, it wasn't just a Jewish mindset. It was a Greek mindset. A, a very similar quotation is attributed both to Socrates and to Plato. When something like this, I'm grateful that I was born human and not a beast. Next, that I was born a man and not a woman. Thirdly, that I was born a Greek and not a barbarian. You see, there's something inherent to man... There's something inherent to us that we exalt ourselves. In missions, we call it ethnocentricity. My race is the best race. Saw this up close in, in, in Swaziland because Swazis liked Americans. 
But I was a, I was a minority. I was, I was no more than 1% or 2% in terms of a white person living in Swaziland. The clear majority were Swazis. And the best thing to be on the planet was a Swazi. And if you couldn't be a Swazi, well, it was pretty good to be a white American. And after that fell in the other African peoples that were around the Swazis. The Swazis were pretty wrapped up in themselves, just like everybody else in the world. We are wrapped up in ourselves. We have this mindset that we compare everybody else around us against ourselves. The gospel wipes all that out because it's all level ground at the cross. And Christians end up thinking Christianly. We end up pursuing racial equality. We are not intimidated by people who are different than ourselves because we are not comparing other people to ourselves. And so... One of the forces you see even in Western civilization, you see the social inequality. Out of racial equality, you see these social injustices like slave and free. Where did the push to, re to, to remove slavery come from? Well, as it has happened over and over again, it's come as an effect of the gospel. A recent movie out, 42, the story of Jackie Robinson. And you know why Jackie Robinson was, there was a, there was a key person, a manager, who, who determined he was going to bring a black baseball player, player from, the, from the black leagues into Major League Baseball. But he was careful who he chose. He chose Jackie Robinson not only because he was a fantastic baseball player. There were several other fantastic black baseball players. That wasn't, that wasn't the only issue here. He knew what he was going to run into. And so being a man of faith in, in himself, he chose Jackie Robinson because Jackie Robinson was a man of strong faith in Jesus, his Savior. And he would be able to, at times when it was necessary, turn the other cheek because his confidence was in God rather than in himself. And that faith in Christ that was a level ground for us in our relationship with God has become a leveler that embraces and welcomes other people in. See, the gospel doesn't exclude. Law excludes. Our own mindset, thinking like law, excludes people who don't seem to be as deserving as us, but the gospel also welcomes in on the same basis that I was received. Christians have been set free from sin to follow Christ in serving others. We don't use others for our gain, slavery. Rather, we give ourselves if we are following the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for others. You see how the gospel turns categories upside down? How the gospel, if it's true, and if I'm living in and walking in what I believe that God has done in saving me, it does have its transforming effect in me. How about male and female? How about the status of women in Western society from the Reformation forward? There's been a lot of sometimes uncomfortable transformations in that process. But the, the standing of women in Western society because of the Reformation back in the late 1500s has changed women in the West compared to in Asia, animistic Africa, Islamic Arab countries, anywhere else around the, around the world where the gospel has not penetrated, you do not have the same, same mindset of equality a return to a, a, um, a harmonious complementarianism. 
that God created men and women. God created for Adam a helpmeet who would complement him. And that complementing looks differently one couple to another, doesn't it? But that we're grateful for one another in the way that we complement one another rather than compete with one another. The essence of the fall was this. The man, he's going to rule in dominating. He's going to dominate you. And the woman, she is going to, rather than being a comfortable compliment, she is always going to be seeking after his permission. What are we told in the gospel? Husbands, love your wives. Give yourself for her. And what is, what is the woman told as well? Respect your husband. Rather than clawing your way up by climbing over the top of him. It's interesting, the gospel reorients our thinking in ways that reflect our marriage is now, now not merely a social contract. This is an agreement that we're going to make so that we can get along and each have our needs met. It's a social contract. But marriage has been raised up to a point that this is going to be a means by which I worship God. This is going to be a context. This is going to be a place where I worship as Christ loved the church. Honor him as the church should honor Christ. It doesn't put, well, husbands are like Jesus and women are something. No, that's not what it's saying at all. But I will give myself to the other. We will submit to one another in fear of Christ. Marriage is not a social agreement. Marriage is not a contract. Marriage is now another place where I worship. You see how it's been elevated. You see how it's been raised up. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's not male or female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. The point I want to make out of that, there's a lot of application we could try to press into in the terms of what it looks like in our relationships, but the point is this. The gospel has freed us from law. The law's purpose was to point us to Christ. The law was a crosswalk that leads us to Christ. But now I walk in light of that cross. I don't live in the crosswalk, but I walk in light of the cross. And there's a difference. What about the cross has its impact upon my life? If I have received graciously, if I have received God's grace, I will live graciously. If even I have been welcomed in, who that I would think to exclude should I rather embrace and welcome in instead? If I was so undeserving when he gave himself for me, who is it that is undeserving that I would still give myself to, not because of what result that might have, but because in giving myself for unworthy or seemingly unworthy, I show something of Christ. That's the transformation of the gospel. When the gospel permeates us, we live in the gospel. We walk in ways that reflect the cross rather than still living in a law mentality, which is a crosswalk that is meant to lead us to Christ. That's the difference. Would you pray with me? Father, there is much that we get just step by step as we, as we realize the goodness of your grace to us, that, that you have given us freely eternal life in Jesus, that you have given your spirit now to live within us. Father, there, there is much about this grace and this unconditional love and the fact of equal standing among humanity that means that I can't compare myself to somebody else. I cannot look down on anybody else because of their sin, because your son, my Savior, 
died for them as much as for me. So Lord, would you make me a Christian who walks in light of your cross, a Christian who would rather sacrifice than condemn, a Christian who would rather give out of what I have for the good of somebody else than to take or to be comfortable. Father, would you use us as a church to extend out to people around us, people who don't know anything about your cross. Lord, the time of the law is, is past. This is the age of your church. And so then, by your working, by your spirit in this church, this is where, this is, this is a means by which other people will know Jesus. Lord, we would ask this morning that people around us would see our Savior in how we walk and how we give ourselves towards them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As the ushers come forward to